Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is America's role in the world. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Larry Diamond, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Confronting Authoritarian Challengers, China and Russia. Is the United States headed towards another Cold War? It was recorded on October 22nd, 2018. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming here at this hour. I'm sure it's a natural hour for you. I'm a scholar and professor at Stanford. I am not always starting at this hour. I'll just be honest with you. Um, the presentation I want to make to you today uh, is drawn from this book that Tom, Tom kindly mentioned that will uh, be coming out uh, next year. And uh, I just want to say that um, democracy is in a difficult place now uh, globally, uh, and a major reason why is because I fear that we are drifting back, not by our choice, uh, but by the actions and choices of now not one, but two very powerful international authoritarian challengers to a kind of Cold War situation. And if we don't grasp what's happening uh, and respond with uh, energy, conviction, and self-confidence, uh, I fear it will be a really... Uh, potentially calamitous time, not only for freedom in the world, but frankly also for our national security. So uh, with that, let me just begin by noting six challenges that, uh, or five here, that I address in the book, only the fifth of which uh, do I want to take the time to uh, share with you now. Um, we have had a kind of decade-long trend of receding freedom and democracy in the world with the deterioration of the rule of law in a lot of difficult places in Latin America, post-communist world in Asia. More recently, we've seen a wave of illiberal populism sweeping in particular through Europe, as you've probably been uh, following. We're seeing around the world, uh, not only in the United States, uh, but in Europe, uh, in the Philippines, it's going on now uh, in a very, uh, intense and distorting way for democracy in Brazil in, the, in advance of their runoff presidential election, increasing ferocious political polarization, which is not created by social media, but is certainly being intensified and manipulated by social media. And finally, the subject of my presentation here, the authoritarian resurgence and the various forms of power projection on the part of Russia and China. Of course, these are not the only uh, autocrats who I think are creating challenges for freedom and security in the world. You see uh, Nicolas uh, Maduro here on the lower left who presides over a Venezuelan country that is now in a state of near total collapse. This is very close to being a failed state Four million Venezuelans are refugees now uh, from the terror and economic misrule uh, of this man and this regime that started with Hugo Chavez. General Al-Sisi in the middle, um, who I think is pursuing uh, a very ill-fated course for trying to restore uh, 
<clears throat> stability to Egypt. We can talk about that. And of course, um, our friend uh, Kim Jong-un. Won't say anything more about him now. So one element of this authoritarian resurgence it's, is what's happening internally in these countries. They're very authoritarian countries, but they are becoming more authoritarian countries. Uh, they are closing what space remained for independent thought and action, independent organization in civil society. And as I'm sure you've been reading in China, independent religious uh, worship uh, and expression. They are cracking down ever more vigorously and comprehensively on the internet, no country more so than China, as I will come to. And they've made it a criminal offense, for example, in Russia, but in many other countries, to receive any kind of technical or financial assistance from international foundations or organizations that might want to help simply to build an independent civil society of people who can improve their society and organize around you know, even modest uh, community issues uh, on their own without having the Chinese Communist Party state control everything, which is the renewed goal of Xi Jinping. Uh, in geopolitics, of course, this is where the national security element uh, enters in uh, more directly. We face a growing challenge of cooperation among these countries, in part through an organization called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes China, Russia, all the post-communist Central Asian states, Iran, and so on. Uh, many of these uh, countries are sharing technologies of repression and surveillance through this, uh, this mechanism. They are, of course, developing very rapidly tools at projecting what we call soft, soft power, particularly with the enormous uh, funding uh, that Vladimir Putin has uh, poured into RT, which used to be called Russia Today and now is just their uh, version of a global uh, television uh, channel. But it's not the BBC friends or CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or anything that we have that's either neutral or not neutral. This is formal, rigid, cynical state propaganda spreading disinformation and lies uh, with a skill that even uh, Soviet communists couldn't match. Then we have the shock power projection. That's a new term that's been developed in recent years, somewhere between soft power and hard power. And it's the thing that I think we need uh, to really begin to comprehend and focus on and respond to, to a degree that we have not been so far. The former, <clears throat> recently former, uh, Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, who responded to this in, I think, uh, a historic and even heroic way with respect to China's efforts to subvert and gain control of much of the media, society, and even politics of Australia, coined the term covert, coercive, and corrupting. These are forms of authoritarian penetration of democratic societies that seek to work under the table use lavish payments of money, threats to Chinese-American communities, 
in Australia, in New Zealand, in the United States, in Europe, that if you criticize the People's Republic of China about Tibet, about what's going on now with the concentration camps in Xinjiang province, about the disappearance of Chinese journalists and intellectuals, about what happened in Tiananmen Square, Square on June 4th of 1989. You know, your family could be at risk, your relatives back in China. So we need to figure out how to combat this. And then there's the hard power projection that I'll speak about. Putin, of course, has become an increasingly uh, repressive leader, uh, particularly since he returned to the presidency. Uh, after a four-year respite, where he really kind of ran the country from behind the scenes as prime minister uh, in 2012. Increasingly, this involves ruthless suppression and elimination of dissent, the creation of a much more comprehensive political terrain of fear and intimidation, the stoking of aggressive nationalism, because this man has very little to show in terms of his performance economically, and socially, so the way he builds up the 50, 60, 70% support that he claims he has in public opinion polls is to make us the enemy and to stoke aggressive nationalism. This corresponds with um, really breathtaking corruption, probably on a kleptocratic scale that is matched by only one or two countries in the world. I refer you here. Uh, to Karen, the late Karen Dewish's remarkable study of Putin's rise to power, which is uh, riveting in many ways, not only in revealing the ruthlessness of the man, but simply his grotesque corruption. And the way he builds and sustains his power through very intimate ties with a network of oligarchs, many of whom spill over in terms of the character of their operations into simply, frankly, organized crime. A revitalization of Russia's military and intelligence capacities. The other day I was on a panel with a foreign ambassador from a European democracy who said, look, Russia's got uh, the uh, gross domestic product of Italy. This is not a country we should worry about. Well, I'll tell you something. If you've got the gross domestic product of Italy, and you've got the scientific, technical, and computer science talent that Russia has, and you're willing to put almost all of it into the development of military technology and tools of information warfare and repression, you can actually do a lot. We're not in an era now where Russia's trying to be everywhere and do everything. We're in an area, era, both with respect to Russia and China, of asymmetric warfare. I think you probably heard a little bit last night from Alex Stamos about this. And if we don't grasp and respond to this, we could have, in general, the most powerful military in the world, but not one that may be able to win the next war. And of course, that involves the new digital warfare capacities, including of the Internet Research Agency, one of whose agents was uh, just indicted, as you know, the other day for continuing efforts to subvert our democracy. This is Russia's new T-90 main battle tank. This is uh, very far from my area of expertise. But I must tell you, as I was in the later stages of researching this book, I was stunned to learn. It was totally surprising to me, because I thought their investments um, 
were mainly in the information warfare side of um, potential aggression. But it's not only. They're investing in military hardware and technology that's capable of uh, doing very dangerous things in Central and Eastern Europe. And I do think NATO faces new risks now, not only because of Putin's greater aggressiveness and his willingness to use these murky forms of semi-aggression as he's used in Eastern Euro Ukraine, where these little green men suddenly start infiltrating without clear identification of where they're from, uh, or the information warfare that he has un unleashed on Estonia, on Ukraine, and on many other uh, members or friends of NATO. He's also investing in hardware as well, and of course his announcement of a new hydrosonic missile <clears throat> that he claims has nu nuclear capability and can um, evade all American defenses, whether that's literally true or not. It's certainly a signal of the way he's trying to ramp up his own military, and it is one of the reasons President Trump is proposing to scrap <clears throat> a, one of the arms control treaties we have with Russia. This is also a murderous man. Uh, everybody is talking now about the horrific, uh, disgusting, uh, assassination and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi, <clears throat> uh, an event around which we organized a very important discussion uh, last Thursday at the Hoover office in Washington, D.C., which was shown on C-SPAN. If you go to C-SPAN and Google that, you can see the whole event. Uh, but the point I made <clears throat> in my column in the American Interest last Friday is that it's not only uh, the Saudis that did this. Uh, the master at this is Vladimir Putin, who has a trail of more than 24 people uh, that he has murdered at home and abroad, leading uh, opponents and critics of his regime, including Alexander Litvinenko, uh, the um, defector from his intelligence agency, who you will recall was assassinated with a version of radioactive plutonium, <clears throat> in 2006 in London, <clears throat> and the Russian lawyer and accountant and investigator, Sergei Magnitsky. How many of you have heard of Sergei Magnitsky? I'm so glad, because this was really a paradigmatic event, <clears throat> signaling uh, a deeper descent into really, I think, a very evil form of rule in Russia. <clears throat> when this man who had uncovered a massive corruption scandal in Russia and had blown the whistle on it was, rather than thanked for assembling the criminal evidence, taken into custody and mercilessly beaten to death. This is what prompted passage in 2012 of the Sergei Magnitsky Act, which enables us to impose, as we have done, targeted sanctions on <clears throat> now quite a number of Russian actors <clears throat> responsible for human rights and grand corruption violations. And then, of course, the Congress on an inspiringly bipartisan basis passed the Global Magnitsky Act uh, in 2016 that um, uh, enables the imposition of targeted sanctions, visa denials, and asset freezes on other 
leaders and actors around the world responsible for these kinds of violations, and that is what uh, Senator Corker, Senator Rubio, and others are calling for the imposition of with respect to um, Saudi leaders found to be responsible for Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder. You probably know about the assassination in 2015 of Boris Nemtsov, who was um, Putin's leading political opponent, uh, about 100 paces from the front of the Kremlin. And then more recently, <clears throat> somebody tracked down uh, this gentleman, Denis Voronikov, in Kiev, where he had taken refuge out of fear from Putin and murdered him in uh, Kiev last year. We, I think, now know quite a bit about the Russian information war on American democracy, which is continuing, the hacking into email accounts and so on, the weaponization of information. But in particular, as the FBI recently announced in, and the Justice Department in its indictment the other day, the effort, increasingly skillful, at least give them credit for the skill and knowledge and targeting and resourcefulness of their efforts to buy uh, social media ads, create dozens and dozens of fake Twitter and Facebook accounts, pretend to be Americans on the left and the right, uh, and just frankly seek to divide us and create political turmoil. We have heard less about what's going on in China and what China is doing to challenge our democracy. This will be the subject of a report on China's influence activities in the United States that we will release at the end of next month. It's a joint task force between the Hoover Institution and the Asia Society. Tom, thank you for your support of that. And um, we have found, I think, some amazing and, and troubling things. Of course, <clears throat> some of them are well known, uh, including, of course, uh, two things with respect to Xi Jinping. One, his unprecedented concentration of political power. Uh, he's now the most powerful communist ruler in China since Mao Zedong. And second of all, his increasing repression and elevation of Communist Party ideology, so that people are having to study it now. There's Communist Party commissars coming to university campuses, reviewing them for ideological purity. I saw this myself when I lectured at, the, at uh, Tsinghua University last year for the Schwarzman College. It's, it's really a grim and scary time inside China. And it is so in part because of the new technology we have now of uh, surveillance, uh, both physically and digitally, that creates the possibility for an Orwellian state far beyond anything I think anyone has imagined since George Orwell wrote 1984. China is putting up all over its cities uh, to a degree and in a number with a comprehensiveness unmatched by any other country cameras to watch what, what people are doing. But in addition, I think it's now widely acknowledged, the Chinese have the most sophisticated facial recognition technology of any state in the world. And they are using this facial recognition technology to identify who's at any demonstration, track it against other information, and create a profile, what they call the Chinese 
social credit system. How many of you have heard of this? So increasingly what China is doing is mashing together all this data that they're gathering from people's cell phones, from uh, which they're being tracked relentlessly, from their email searches, from where they travel to, uh, what they might be reported to have said in a group meeting. And this all gets <clears throat> um, mashed together and analyzed through big data analysis in very powerful supercomputers and through an algorithm that is programmed to really reward political loyalty and punish political inquiry and disloyalty, people get an overall score. It's called the social credit score, but it's really a Communist Party loyalty score. And the lower your score is, the more you will be at risk in the future as this develops and rolls out of not being able to get on an airplane, much less get a passport to travel out of the country, not be able to get on a train, not be able to get a job, not be able to get your kid into college. Think of how comprehensive and really uh, sophisticated this method of internal control is. Already we have a resurgence in Xinjiang province, which is the Muslim-majority interior province near Central Asia, of massive re-education camps in response to protests in that region, partly because the Communist Party has become so aggressive again in people's uh, exercise of their right to worship uh, as they wish. Some 200,000 people, uh, it is now estimated, are being held in communist re-education, re or really, I think you could say, concentration camps. And then there's the outward uh, efforts at Chinese projection of sharp power uh, and Chinese ambition. Uh, China is using its Belt and Road Initiative, which I'm sure you've heard of, and its lavish lending, by the way, at market rates. This is nothing ideal, idealistic about this. It's plenty ideological. Um, to put countries in strategic places in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in a situation of great vulnerability and indebtedness. This is happening now with Venezuela as well. And once these countries have accumulated debt from China at commercial rates that they can never repay, the Chinese then show up and say, well, give us your strategic port of Hanban Toda on a 99-year lease and we'll relieve not your entire $3 billion debt, we'll just cut it down by a billion, which Sri Lanka agreed to. Uh, you're never gonna pay off your debt to us, Venezuela, so give us your oil supply for the next 20 years and you know, maybe we'll call it even. You know they're building military bases in the South China Sea. This is part of what has led uh, the current administration in the United States increasingly to try and confront and challenge this. Uh, these are not just stakes of claim to sovereignty. These are military bases. They've got the largest dredging machines in the world, pulling up sand from the seabed and creating new islands out of clumps of rocks on which they are building runways capable of landing and obviously lifting off major military aircraft. And then there's China's forced technology transfer, which represents frankly, an existential threat to our 
um, not only economic preeminence in the world, but to our military superiority as a result of forcing companies to transfer their intellectual property as a result of having access to the Chinese market, as a result of sending graduate students to many of the most sophisticated uh, technical innovation programs in computer science, artificial intelligence, robotics, hydrosonics, and so many other things, and then bringing back a lot of that technology to China as a result of simple corporate theft and many other techniques, they are surging ahead in many of these areas. Uh, and if you want to know where this can lead, anybody heard of this novel, Ghost Fleet? Well, I recommend it to the rest of you if you want to not sleep well uh, after reading the first chapter. Um, so then there are the Chinese influence operations that we're trying to comprehend uh, in our current study, uh, the report for which will be released at the end of next month. You've got China... Uh, energetically expanding its state-run media, uh, now creating something they call the Voice of China, uh, and pouring billions of dollars into these activities. The creation of Confucius Institutes, we have one here uh, at Stanford. On many campuses in the United States and abroad, I suspect this is one of them, they're fairly innocuous places where they support language instruction and so on. But in many other campuses, you know, there's not much else going on in China's studies. China is paying, basically, for most of what a particular college may be doing in China studies. So when they can then ban the discussion of Tibet or Taiwan or June 4th, 1989, what is that doing to intellectual freedom in the United States? And none of these agreements with these Confucius Institutes are publicly available for scrutiny or faculty control. We're not saying get rid of every single Confucius Institute, but we are saying that transparency is vital in confronting this Chinese effort to subvert our democracy, and that begins on our university campuses, and it begins with what China is doing through its embassies and consulates and democracies around the world to control their own Chinese foreign students through the Chinese Scholars and Students Associations, <clears throat> get them to protest when the Dalai Lama comes to visit, as he did in UC San Diego, get them to threaten other Chinese students who are critical of the Chinese uh, government uh, back on the mainland. This is completely unacceptable uh, in our democracy. So I'll just briefly con conclude <clears throat> with what is to be done. Uh, these slides will be available, of course, to anybody who wants them. First of all, you know, we need to become engaged again uh, in a more assertive and uh, self-confident way in the effort to uh, promote and defend uh, our values and support people, not force them on people, but support people who are working for them, often uh, at great, great risk. I think there's a lot of good programming that we've done through the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development, as well as the National Endowment for Democracy that's done this. Uh, there's a lot that American diplomats can do on the ground uh, to do this. A lot of this involves, I think, a new effort, given what the Russians and Chinese are, are spending on disinformation, misinformation, the uh, pervasive spread of state propaganda, a renewed effort at public diplomacy 
to tell our story and to get out the truth and to spread democratic ideas. We have to understand, document, and explain to the American people the scope of Russian and Chinese penetration efforts. And that's part of what we're trying to do with this report that will be released soon. I think when rulers really cross the line, as Putin has repeatedly, as I believe the crown prince of Saudi Arabia just has uh, this month, uh, we need to impose targeted sanctions. We cannot allow a situation where Americans or American residents <clears throat> can be, uh, or British residents, which is many of the ones Putin has killed, uh, can just be knocked off in this kind of wanton fashion. And um, I think there's a lot we can do, a lot we probably know already about where their wealth is uh, scattered around the world, to document and expose it and let their own people know uh, what their leaders really have. We need to do more to modernize and harden our voting systems, um, or there is going to be a situation in the future where a foreign actor, I'm not saying I know who it would be, but there are several candidates, could hack into the electronic voting systems of machines that haven't been hardened and haven't been given a paper backup, an auditable trail, uh, and literally change the results. Uh, and if you think, well, you know, maybe that's not so bad because, uh, you know, you, you like the party that has been, uh, you know, that might have benefited from it, we don't know who's going to intervene to do what uh, and what the result is going to be for American democracy. We've really got to rally together to fight this threat. I think we have to demand reciprocity. They are denying visas, China to our scholars, our journalists, uh, and uh, our researchers and think tank leaders, anyone who said a bad word about uh, China can be punished by not being given a visa. But they've got full access to our think tanks, our officials, uh, and our, uh, our people. And I think the Chinese party state now needs to be told uh, it's going to be reciprocal, reciprocal access here. If you're going to deny visas to our people, uh, we're going to deny visas to your people until there is a fair and level playing field. Uh, and, um, you know, this is really an extension of what uh, President Trump has been saying with respect to trade more generally. Finally, um, I'll just conclude on this note. I am not a security specialist. I'm not a military specialist. But I do think about power in the world. And I really have to say, in conclusion, both about our democracy and our security leadership in the world, we can't take anything for granted. We are living through an immensely dynamic and fluid period right now uh, in which we could face in the future, God forbid, the need to actually confront Chinese uh, or Russian military aggression uh, in Europe or the Pacific without the confidence we should have that we would win that military encounter. Thank you, and now we'll take some questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.
or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.